Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, from a cool and rainy Tel Aviv. We also have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from a six foot six snowman. All right. So my we daughter also have Steve done. Edwards. Hello from, what do we got? My name, Cool Portland. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top Ten Devs. Yeah, it's been snowing here this morning. Um, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Alex Russell. Alex, welcome back. Howdy, thanks for having me. Yeah, now, um, you know, we've had you on to talk about various things, but uh, we were talking a little bit before we got on and recorded about, um, you know, tools and frameworks, and we, we've had people on to talk about various frameworks over the last little bit. We had uh, the folks from this dot come on and talk about Svelte. We had Mishko Hevery on a couple of times to talk about Builder and Quick. Um, you know, we, we often have topics that relate to React. And as we were talking, the topic also came up that, you know, with performance and whether these things are kind of the right tool for the job, so to speak, on some of this stuff. And so I was wondering if you could kind of give us a 10,000 foot view on how to think about this stuff and whether or not, I don't know, if I have a framework, everything looks like a nail is the right way to go. Or if, you know, how, how do we evaluate whether or not these are the right things that we want to use when we start or continue to build a project? Out of that framing, thanks for, uh, thanks for setting it up that way. Because um, I, I think you've really hit on uh, a really, uh, a core miscalculation, uh, a fundamental error that a lot of teams make when they're sitting down to build a web property, which is, that they imagine the most complicated version of that thing with the most engaged user that they could possibly have. And then they spend a lot of time attempting <laughs> attempting to make life really good for that user, right? Like attempting to say, mm-hmm. ah, this user who spends all day in my thing is going to absolutely need this 50th interaction to feel really smooth because otherwise they will have been very annoyed by the last 49, Right. Like we, we need to drive down, you know, all of those, all of those latencies. And therefore we can justify to ourselves and eventually to others, a very large pile of upfront cost and complexity in order to make the 50th interaction good. And I'd like, I'd like teams and managers and tech leads to step back. Um, and to the extent that they're building something that looks like something that already exists in the world or is redeveloping an existing site. I think we're missing in the conversation um, uh, a way to think about these in terms of session depth, right? So if you if you naively think about like a blog, right? Um, we probably all have one or we've had one at some point. A blog is for most of the consumers of the content, something that you go to once and or very infrequently, it's not part of your da- daily driver activity. Um, and then you scroll, you click on a link or you go to the blog. So that's one interaction. And then you scroll. And remember, your code isn't handling scrolling. The browser is handling scrolling. We do threaded scrolling for you. It's magical. You're not doing that. So that's not actually in the calculus. So the inter- the only interaction that you've actually handled Except is, the sites that do. And I hate them. Well, now they're on the hook. Now they're on the hook to do a good job, right? And so... <laughs> um, 
so that, that actually adds to the responsibility that you take uh, when, you, when you're doing this, because you then have to make sure that each of those interactions is as good as it could have been otherwise. Okay, so, so let's, look at the, let's look at the interaction depth, right? So you, you navigate to the page, you navigate to the post, and then you end up um, maybe uh, handling another couple of clicks along the way. Maybe the user clicks to some related articles, or maybe they click on an app, or maybe they click on you know, something in the footer to add a comment. Very few sessions are going to have, like think of it as a histogram, right? Because like all of our performance work is done in histograms. So we don't think about one user or even a prototypical user unless we're sort of like using them as a stand-in for the worst experience, not the best. And so um, if you think about the histogram, like the distribution of users, almost all of the users on a blog who come to a post are going to go to it, scroll, and leave. So you've got one a single interaction across which to divide all the costs for loading that page, right? So then if you, you know, think about like, I don't know, uh, a Photoshop or a Figma, right? Like these are editors. These are things that are deep in the weeds. You spend uh, many, 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 many interactions per load. And this intuitive difference between them, right? Like why does it feel okay for, you know, a Photoshop or something to, to load up uh, more stuff because there are no short sessions, right? There, there, there basically aren't. You, you may tap, or tap around, but you're probably going to have 30, 40, 50 interactions in even the shortest session in a creative tool. And, and so at that side of it, you need a local data model that can optimistically apply changes and synchronize them with the server. And otherwise, the latency sucks because in all of these cases, you could imagine each interaction that you take uh, as being a full server round trip and re-render, right? So like, I think this takes us to um, to Gmail <laughs> or, or, uh, or Outlook, where you could, um, you can, in fact, uh, there's, a simple ver there's a simple HTML version of Gmail. You can, in fact, uh, feel this experience. You can go to Gmail and you can have the experience uh, with a plain HTML version of every interaction doing a full server round trip. So, if you're just trying to read a single email, if you like find a search result or a link in your, you know, in some other communication tool that you click on, and it's just taking you to a single email, do you want to wait for the loading bar? No, you, you just you just want the email. <laughs> like it's you're just there to like mm -hmm. go to the thing and scroll, right? You're you're not you're not doing a deep interaction, you're not composing, you're not like sitting there doing chat. But the primary Gmail interface will spend a lot of time getting its stuff together in order to to surface to you all the options to do all those other things. Now, you may be setting up your primary daily uh, mail compose and read experience, in which case, you know, yes, you can afford, you know, a lot of upfront stuff because the denominator is going to be larger, right? If I'm just, if I'm going to be using this as the thing where I triage all my email and I come back to it and then I'm doing chat instead of and all the rest, like that is a different kind of an experience because the session is different. The session depth is different. And so, you know, going back to the blog example, uh, WordPress is, is fascinating because WordPress is actually bimodal, right? WordPress has both kinds of interaction in it. It has the reading experience and it has the editor experience, right? If you are an author on a blog, you can go to WordPress and log in and now suddenly you're in an editor. And they're kind of very, it's very rare that there will be short editor sessions, if that makes sense. So I encourage teams to step back and think about uh, amortizing costs across session depth, and then trying to like 
sit back and look at other kinds of apps that are in the same area. And if they don't have their own local data about what kind of an app it is and what that will mean for session depth, to try to extrapolate from existing tools. Um, almost nobody, and I say this you know, with, with some, some caveats, of course, um, but almost nobody is building a brand new kind of thing on the web today. Like the web's vast. It's very large. There is an example of stuff that you've done. And almost every software project that I've worked with in the last 10 years or so, almost all of them are redevelopment. Oh, like, for sure. We're all doing cloud applications. I mean, yeah, the, the first the version home, of Gmail yeah. was launched in 2001, two. Mm-hmm. Right. There has been no new, there's been no, no, you know, brand new Gmail in 20 years. Okay. Uh, so, so, okay. So, so step, let's step back then and, and say, I mean, there has been, they, they rebuilt it once. Um, uh, but, but that was the Ajax version and now there's two. Um, well, they also put the mobile version. Anyway, I think they rebuilt um, it again and then reverted as well. I, I think there's been three or four versions, but I uh, think one I mean, of them didn't stick around and the other one was yeah, wave. But, but, but it's the beside version. the point, the, the key aspect isn't, isn't the technology or the fact that maybe they changed something. They were effectively rebuilding the same thing, only maybe slightly better. So it still right, right, right. it still goes to the point that you know all the web like most of the web applications that we build are essentially the same. They are essentially mostly some form of a CRUD application, and and frameworks exist because everybody's building the same thing. And we can know things about them as a result, right? We can say things about the population of users, about the kinds of interactions they're going to have, about the sessions they're going to traverse as they're using these things. They're not mysteries. We just aren't looking. Okay, so we can step back and we can start to apply those archetypes to our work and say, okay, am I building something that's mostly a consumption or a reading experience? Right, my denominator is going to be pretty small, which means that the amount of cost that I can afford from the user's perspective to get that out the door, get my interactions service is extremely low. If the denominator is one, I mean, it's unitary. You can't, <laughs> you can't afford more than, um, uh, than you know, uh, the minimum for that single interaction. So that is a, I think it's not, it's not an advanced model. And I, I owe a blog post on this, but, um, it's at least a first way to cut through some of the noise about frameworks, because um, if we fixate on the idea of the most engaged user who lives in our tool um, and can't live without it and has extremely long sessions, and that isn't our prototypical user, most of our users, or even our P75 or P95 user, then we might be making bad choices. Here's the thing from my perspective. The undoubted current king of the hill in, in you know in framework land is react and and most other frameworks are either some sort of a take on react or a reaction to react so they're all very much influenced by react and react was created as far as i understand uh, to support the meta slash facebook use case which is precisely the scenario of somebody living within that site for a long time and that website effectively actually being a web app. And and not only has React been created for that purpose, but because the core team, the React core team are mostly or maybe all of them are are meta employees and meta uses React, then that's the guiding principle for how React has been developing ever since. So I, I wrote a post um, <clears throat> last year 
about um, management maturity um, regarding performance. And I think it, I think it really speaks to what your what your I'm sorry sorry to, to post links to my own blog. I, that, that's kind of kind of cheeky, but um, the the um, the way I understand the difference between what Meta is doing with React and what everyone else is doing with React is that you know Meta is a on the one hand an extremely high maturity organization in terms of operating the technology that they've built. Uh, the React. React upgrades to various parts or React re re rebuilding or use inside of Facebook um, was not the first time React had put, or sorry, Facebook had put JavaScript on a web page, right? And, and it's only for a single product. And remember, the constraints of that product are a heavily engaged social network. They know who those users are. They know how engaged they are. They know how long their sessions are. Um, with a staffed performance team, some of the most senior engineers the company have worked on that performance team. Uh, with Dedicated performance ship gates, which is to say, if you regress these metrics, you do not go to space. Your your PR, your CL does not go uh, to the product. Um, and management who will pay attention to those ship gates and say, no, you actually can't ship this because it's going to regress performance because performance is engagement, right? Like if we regress performance on the site, then we regress engagement and engagement is from a social network's perspective, uh, the highest virtue. And lastly, uh, they have, well, two, two more caveats. One. Uh, they can afford to build it three times, at least. They have, right? They they operate uh, Blue, right, the, the main webpage. They operate mobile.facebook.com and they operate, um, what is it, mbasics.facebook.com, the, the, the light version, which is, you know, extremely stripped down. Actually, All three of those are actively maintained. By the way, actually, that light version is built in Israel, just so you know. Yeah, so so there's, there's at least two or three teams, right, who are building expressions of this service and they can segment their users. So if a user is on a device that's too slow or a network that's too slow, they can divert them to a more appropriate experience. And all the content is behind the login. So let's say that you need to up upfront load a bundle. You have the time that it takes to do the login for, for a user who hasn't been there before to start doing it. And there is a machine learning based per user bundling system. Okay, if your application has all of those but guardrails and constraints and controls, then great. Go for Facebook. Go 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 for whatever Facebook recommends. Go for React. Makes sense. Uh, if that's not you, if that's not your team, and if that's not your application, then you know we just need to step back and ask: Is this for me? Because it's you know most apps aren't that, and for most users, that's an inappropriate choice. Um, or rather, you may not be employing enough management discipline to ensure that it's an appropriate choice. And so this is where I kind of say, I don't really blame programmers for wanting to do something, um, but I have a lot less time for the managers who allowed this nonsense to continue. Um, we have a, a real disaster in our management culture around front end. Uh, managers keep buying Hopium. They keep buying the idea that the next framework thing is going to solve the problem of them not actually paying attention to the user experience. And it's not. It just demonstrably hasn't, and it's not going to. I'm, my experience is that very rarely do senior managers in most companies, putting aside what you said about Meta, actually um, take into consideration, you know, which framework to use before they actually buy into it based That's on right. the considerations that you just mentioned. Basically, they ask the developers more or less which frameworks 
do you guys want to use? What what what's considered like best? And then, and then these are marks, yeah. right? They are the dumb money. They are the folks who should not be buying a framework. They can't afford a framework. Just from an organizational capacity perspective, whatever they think they're spending, um, you know, they may be getting something entirely different, right? It's like it's like hiring interpretive dance artists to do some light demolition on a house upgrade, right? Like the wall might come down, but the people doing the thing probably aren't doing what you think they're doing <laughs> for the reasons that you think that you're doing it. And you're going to have a lot of questions about why it's so slow, but you're not going to get good answers, right? So but, break that down a little bit more because I, I mean, the reason that, if if everybody's so inexperienced and everybody's so bad at everything, then it the framework is at least a baseline and it has documentation. No, it's not. HTML is the baseline. What? It's not. No, no, no. <laughs> That's wrong. Um, if, if you think about how a browser processes a web page, the baseline is HTML. We take HTML off yeah, the wire. Yes. We turn it I into mean, DOM nodes. I mean, in terms of a group of people working on a thing, if everybody's inexperienced and they don't have good management, all of these yeah. problems that you're surfacing, which I I agree, but then the the problem that the the framework solves from my perspective is not a technical problem; it's a communication problem because it provides the documentation and a figurehead who says do it like this. Uh, yeah, I um, it's hard for me to disagree more. <laughs> um, but I'll try. Go <laughs> <Right? laughs> um, <Go> on. <laughs> so so um. One way, I think you've perfectly encapsulated a um, a framing of the narrative around frameworks, which is to say, I need the framework because rather than what am I trying to do here? Because your alternatives are not, I'm doing something in JavaScript now, what? The alternatives are uh, a vast world of existing technologies that have worked for more than two decades uh, that generate HTML and CSS, right? Like, the, the baseline assumption for how I put pixels on screen if I'm building something for the web is I need HTML and then I maybe need to style it, right? Like that's what the browser sees in order to generate pixels. JavaScript is the that we're doing it live of web development. It takes control away from the browser <laughs> and then says, I'm going to rebuild everything that I'm going to do inside the JavaScript and I'm going to take that control away from the browser's ability to optimize those properties. Right. Like when people talk about like, oh, yeah, you don't need to worry about like the current crop of JavaScript frameworks because we're going to rebuild it in Rust and Wasm. It, what I hear is I don't understand how scrolling works. I don't understand how resource loading works. And I don't understand browsers. Like you're telling me that you actually cannot be trusted with these tools because you don't understand. them. You don't understand what they do. You don't understand like the thousands of engineer hours, hundreds of engineer years that go into making sure that scrolling doesn't feel like junk. <laughs> I need to interrupt for a second. I, I, I think we need to put it out there that for the, best, for the past two decades, C++ engineers have done an incredible job of making the web faster, while JavaScript engineers have done their utmost to make the web slower. <laughs> so it's kind of an ongoing war <laughs> between these two camps of developers. Uh, who can who can win? And it looks like the JavaScript guys are winning because you are, know, are you familiar always, with the idea of on JavaScript? <laughs> are, are you familiar with the idea of um, uh, induced demand? 
Nope. Okay, so there's a there's a theory. Um, you know, it's disputed, but the idea that um, you know, why why is traffic so bad in California is is a, is a question that, as a California resident, I um, <laughs> have to unfortunately pay some attention to. Uh, and the answer isn't for lack of roads, right? We we've got some of the most roads, some of the biggest roads, some of the widest roads, um, and adding a new lane to a highway. I mean, but yes, we've we've got a population, but it's not even particularly dense compared to like real cities. Um, you know, traffic is bad because we keep building roads. Like I, that, that's the way to think about it. So when we make a road wider, we actually don't reduce demand for cars. We don't actually make anything faster because people will then say, oh, well, this is a fine way to get around. I'm going to buy a car because then I can get there, right? So creating roads creates demand for cars, which fills roads. So and that's what we have most made businesses want to do, right? <laughs> they want to create demand for their product. <laughs> so we've, we've spent a lot of time, like browser engineers have spent a lot of time creating a wider lane for you to write JavaScript in. And, you know, I, I would say to my friends on the V8 team, you know, uh, it's worth actually investigating whether or not any gain that you make this quarter persists. Because if you make it faster, what we experience is JavaScript developers just filling the channel. They just fill that wider channel with more nonsense. And just, I mean that from the end user's perspective. Just as a it's comment for nonsense. As a comment for our listeners, in case they may not know, V8 is the JavaScript engine within the Chrome browser and now also within Edge. So that's yeah. that's what your JavaScript programs are running on. And as Alex alluded, they've done an amazing job over the years of making JavaScript run ever faster. You know, the same JavaScript run ever faster, which as you say has driven us Java developers to throw ever more JavaScript at the V8 engine. Uh, I think there's also a problem where uh, of management, and I and I, I, I use this phrase broadly, but um, you know, you could say that the culture of front end has degraded. Um, that that people who build front end websites don't share a cultural norm that our job is to do a good user, do a good job for the marginal user, and. You know, and that is to say users who are not themselves. Um, and, and I think some of this is natural, right? We have gone from a world where most people who were getting onto the internet were getting onto the internet in a way that was not too dissimilar from the way that the developer was getting onto the internet. They had a PC under their desk. It was, you know, within a couple of generations of age of the first thing. And, you know, the network was what it was. It wasn't fast, but everyone was sort of like in some, you know, at least one order of magnitude of difference of each other in terms of building and consuming those experiences. And today we've moved to a world where the the high end and the low end have delaminated. They have come apart from each other. They are, they are now on in, entirely independent trajectories and developers continue to live the life of uh, uh, luxury. They continue to live in a world of fast computers and fast networks because that's how you, you know, that's that's the best version of computing. And developers want to be good computering people. <laughs> so um, we have ended up in a place where there's very little attachment or even comprehension about how the choices that we're making really play out in the real world. And you have to go study the world in order to rebuild that understanding. So Alex, and that's a new muscle. Alex, I know that you've written several articles uh, on on the, what you just described, this uh, separation that uh, that was that that exists between the high end and the low end on 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 the web. C can you give some numbers to you know, like some examples? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I'll 
I'll drop another link to um, this series of articles I've been writing since about 2017, um, trying to keep tabs on the evolving reality. Uh, and so the, uh, <clears throat> the, the TLDR of the article is a, is a work back from uh, an estimate of where the 75th percentile user, which is to say the user who's on a device that is three quarters of the way through the distribution from fastest to slowest. So the slowest device is going to be, you know, way out in the tail. It's going to be north of P99. The P75 user is going to be someone who is, you know, experiencing the, the way um, mo- a quarter of users experience it, um, and it'll be faster for everyone else. So maybe that's too conservative an estimate. A lot of teams that I work with only report P95, uh, and I think that's a that's a good way to work if you're working in terms of a performance organization. Uh, if, if you're not that sophisticated, if you don't have that much discipline, then P75 is better than P50. P50 is a lie. Don't, don't, don't think about medians. Medians are junk. <laughs> um, so the P75 user is an attempt to characterize um, a, a target that we can try to learn something about and try to situate ourselves in their lives and say, what's, what's computing like for them? Like, how does it work? Like, if I just like tap on a link and go to a web page, what's the situation they're in? Um, and so this is a work back from what we know about the market for devices and the network reality that folks are experiencing today. Uh, and the market for devices, the interesting part about it is that it's a market that is mostly about old devices. So the replacement rates for devices define what the current deployed fleet looks like. So as devices age out at some amount, right? So you you, you can think of them as like a, as like a bucket, right? And you, with a, with a drain at the bottom. So how big is the bucket is kind of like how many devices are there in the world? You're pouring some new devices in and you're draining some old ones out. And they drain out usually at the rate at which they become too slow from the user's perspective to do the job or they break. Um, and for mobile devices, that they break pretty, pretty fast because they're in a harsher environment, right? They're, they're kicking around in our pockets and uh, they're now users' most... Um, or because uh, they're made of glass on the front and the back and <laughs> they nothing fall into, to do with yeah. the environment. And As they, they used into, to last just fine. And they fall into toilets. They, they, they befall all sorts of, of um, foul outcomes. Yeah, sure. So um, the device replacement rates in mobile are, you know, between, I mean, between three and five years. Um, <clears throat> in most markets, it def- it's different by market. The richer the market, the more wealthy the users in the market, the faster devices tend to get replaced. Um, there are also effects about newness. So the first phone that you get is something that's probably lower end. And then you don't know, so you don't spend a lot on it because you aren't sold on the value of it, especially in emerging markets. And then you tear up the next time you buy uh, because suddenly you know that it's valuable and you'd like a better version of that. So there are a lot of these conflate, conflating, confounding effects that conflate um, different uh, inputs and outputs with each other. But we can look at the broad aggregates to try to understand how it's going. So the P75 device today is not an iOS device, right? Uh, Apple sells between 15 and 20% of devices worldwide in any given year. Um, they last longer because they're better made, they're better built, um, they're nicer devices, and they're much faster. Uh, through their entire lives, but the market is entirely segmented. So the top end is all Android, uh, sorry, is, is all iOS, and the bottom end is all Android. Uh, there are no slow iOS devices, and there are no uh, fast Androids. It's, that's like that's a good way to think about it. Maybe Qualcomm will someday get off the, 
you know, get out there. That's pretty harsh features. what you just said. The fact that there are no fast Android devices, that's, you know, that's... But it's... Okay, from the process go, go have a look at this. It's true because they don't... They optimize for multi-core, not for... They, they do horizontal scale, not vertical scale. And well, here's, here's the multi-core. Here's the multi-core chart. Uh, mm. So I've, I've been tracking this for a lot of years now. Um, here's the latest chart uh, from my my uh, regathering last year. Um, I guess they just released the S23 Ultra. But a good way to think about the, the most expensive Android device you can buy today is that it is between 18 and 24 months, um, the latest iOS device. So iOS, that's multi-core. iOS is, that's multi-core. is a, a two, year, two years to a year and a half ahead of any Android device is basically what you're saying. Their chips are. Yeah. Um, and this and, is single core. It's and worse. Apple forces you out. Even if the phone is fine, it's in pristine condition, it's working, you eventually get forced out of Apple because they release software updates that make the phone unusable and then stop releasing updates, and you can't downgrade. And that's I mean, the that's, same that's for the laptops preferable. and other computers, too. I've run into that a couple of times. <laughs> it's slightly preferable to not getting any updates at all, which is kind of the average Android experience. But like, let, let's, stay, let's stay able to software side of this for a second um, and, and say, oh, sorry, uh, put it to the side um, and, and say that, you know, if we understand that the P75 user is a, a user on a median price Android from three years ago, what did the median? What was the median price three years ago, and what did it buy? The median price for smartphones, even as the pricing has kind of also delaminated, like the low end is getting much more much more successful in terms of market penetration, and the high end is just getting much much more expensive. Um, the median price hasn't fluctuated that much. It, it, it's bounced around between you know uh, two hundred seventy five and three hundred and twenty five dollars. It's about three hundred bucks. Three years ago it was about three hundred bucks worldwide. So if you think about what did $300 a smartphone buy you three years ago, suddenly you have your understanding of what that device is. It doesn't have a 5G radio. It was sold three years ago. Like even if there is a 5G deployment in your, in your local area, the median user does not have 5G. <laughs> they can't. There, there's no 5G radio in their, in their device because 300 years ago, you couldn't get a 5G radio for that price. You could actually probably couldn't get a 5G radio for that price. Um, and they are on, um, you know, they're they're definitely like if you're looking worldwide, they're definitely not in the U.S. Uh, or even in, the, in another geography with fast networks in general. Um, although the price for for data has fallen precipitously outside uh, uh, these more expensive Western markets, so um, they have access to lots of data. It's just not that fast, uh, but it's a lot better than it used to be. So the networks are improving dramatically. So that's good. Uh, we can think about like low speed 4G is now being kind of where we want to target. Not we don't have to think about 3G much anymore. This is this is huge progress. This is awesome. Uh, 5G is not going to happen for these users for a long time. Um, that's that's a factor both of physical hardware deployment and capital requirements for operators, but also of their devices. And then um, from the performance of their devices. You should understand that the median device is a mid-tier to low-end Android, and their performance is basically stagnant. Like they they are not getting faster. So in the in the charts that I, I showed there, I track a couple of lines. The top is the fastest um, iOS device you can get at the moment. The second is the fastest Android device you can get at the moment. These are all with Geekbench scores, by the way. Um, the third is median priced uh, worldwide 
Android devices, and then the bottom is the low end, the true low end, like about you know about a hundred bucks rather than two to three hundred. So uh, performance at the median is stagnant. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you are buying a, a high end Android or a high end or an iOS device, which is by definition high end, um, your reality for for who your users probably are is um, is not representative. You have to do work to recreate an understanding of who's actually going to experience your device, your um, content and how it's going to go. Um, you know, it was always the joke, right? Like works, works on my Netscape um, <laughs> in early web development. It was like, oh, this seems broken. Oh, it works in my Netscape. Um, but the, that, that kind of like insular privilege of uh, it's working for me, um, it has, has, come entirely away from market reality. Market reality is not fast devices. It's not fast networks. So what, what this graph is showing, by the way, from my perspective, is that the iPhone that I just upgraded from, which is the iPhone SE, is better than all except for the Galaxy line, the Galaxy S tier. Correct. Everything else. In terms of single and multi-core CPU performance, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So so my my... Well, I guess, what is it, 2016? So what seven-year-old iPhone SE is what the average person is experiencing on the web. And let me tell you, it's it's terrible. So I didn't say average. I said P75. Oh, me, me. Okay. Oh, this is... Right. Yeah, so, so this 20, is, the, we're the, thinking the, histograms now. It's a, it's a little bit harder. Um, the average will be, again, think about the median price device sold two years ago, right? If the replacement rate is four years, you can sort of like say, okay, what was the median device sold then? And then we can do that. There could be confounding factors that cause that anal- that kind of a little model for how to construct that analysis to be totally wrong. <laughs> um, but fortunately, like looking a little bit more deeply into sales and, and the, the actual device performance, I don't, I don't think we need to think that much harder than that right now, um, which is good, which makes, makes it easier. So to put it in practical terms, um, if I'm building a website using a framework and it's an w- actual website, not a web app, that means that I, I pre- predominantly care about the first two or three interactions, then at least 25% of my users are going to get really bad experience, is what you're saying. Well, that's partially up to you. I, I think this is where we come back to the question <laughs> of frameworks, right? Like you have agency. There's a bunch of stuff that's out of our control, right? We're programming the devil's computer over links we don't own, sipping it through a straw. Um, and, you know, we can't count on on not even the software version or the OS, right? Like like we're in a much harder world of, of uncontrolled variables than most other client-side programmers in the world. Um, it's important that we respect that. Those, the, the, those differences don't go away just because we have, I don't know, iOS envy or like native app developer envy. Those differences don't disappear on us. And here I think is, is, is a key aspect because we've been talking about uh, the developers and about the negligence of managers so the ones that do actually have agency are the developers. And there is, I think, uh, some, 
there is a, an interesting situation with web developers who, uh, the, the, like, the, the way that I feel about it is the majority of web developers like to see themselves as if they're building web apps, where in fact they're building web pages. So they're building their web pages as using tools that are mostly appropriate for web apps, which is what you kind of touched on at the beginning of our conversation. Um, but, you know, because that's the way they like to see themselves as, they like to see themselves or envision themselves as application developers, they prefer to use such tools. And like you said, it does work on their machine. I, I mean, they can demo an actual working version of whatever it is they were tasked to build. So that's what they built. Look, if you hire clowns to do bricklaying for you, you're going to be entertained the whole time. <laughs> I love And you might examples. even get a wall. You might even get a wall out the other side. Um, but the job that's being done and the one that you thought was being done can be extremely different if you aren't focused on what the end product is rather than, you know, <laughs> anything else. If you're focused heavily on the end product, then maybe maybe you hire clowns. Maybe clowns are the best way to lay bricks today. I don't know. Like, it could be awesome. But it seems like if you do that a couple of times and it's not working out and you're still in the, in the process of needing to put up some brick walls, you've got a problem, right, if you keep hiring clowns. So what are you saying? That so, you should all be using WordPress rather than React? Please, I'm going no, for my face no. makeup. <laughs> but, um, so I, I think the the question that I would ask, and, and I think it's along the same vein as Dan, maybe a little more um, broad, is if if the tools that we're instinctively reaching for because, you know, they're nice, they make us happy, whatever, aren't the ones that are going to get us the outcome we want with our users or with the applications we want to build or things like that, um, what do we do, right? Because it seems like you're making the case against certain technologies as opposed to telling us, okay, so yeah, what is the right thing to reach for? What What is the right choice on, um, I, I need to put something together that gives utility to people who are using phones, laptops, tablets to access my web page so that they can get the thing that they need done, done, to get their job yeah. done so that companies yeah. will pay me or people will pay me so that I can keep the That's lights right. on and pay my employees. So, so what do I do? Great. Where do I go? Great. So, so let's let's um let's create a choice architecture that you can play forward to try to help make these decisions. Because if we look at the the complexities that we've just talked about and we're and we're really honest about them, the first thing that falls out of that calculus is to say there isn't a one size fits all, right? We we have to acknowledge that for the users who are in an editor experience. It's going to be better if I don't have to go to the server every single time I type a key or every time I tap a button, right? Like, the, why was it a sea change to go from MapQuest where you click, you know, north, south, east, west to uh, Google Maps, Slippy Maps, right? Like, why was that a sea change? It was a what, sea change a because what, on a change? sea change, it was a it was a huge difference in the quality of the user experience. It was a it was a. Uh, 
a new epoch of how we can okay. build interactive C, experiences. As in OSHA. S-E-A, not yeah. the C. By, by the way, oh, sorry, sorry, by sorry. The way if I can <laughs> give a concrete, specific example of my own, uh, back when I worked at Wix, we had totally distinct performance metrics that we would use for the Wix editor versus websites that were built using the Wix editor. So for the Wix editor, the primary metric was about responsiveness of interaction once the editor was already loaded. Our users would literally tell us, like they would be blunt. They would say, I don't care how long it takes to load as long that once it is loaded, it's super responsive to my interactions. You know, I'll go and make myself a cup of coffee while it's loading and just make sure that once it's up and running, that it's really responsive and, and, and you know, all my interactions are fluid. Obviously, for the websites that were built, it was the exact opposite where you needed to get them to load as quickly as possible. And most sessions were usually one or two pages deep. And that would be it. Yeah, you, you've extremely um, adeptly captured that difference in type being related to session depth, um, being related to the user success is dominated by the depth of their sessions. And so what we can afford is what we can divide by the number of interactions, right? So we want to make each, we want to make that, that resulting number as low as possible. So we want uh, the lowest latency possible for each interaction. And maybe that's a, you know, a weighted sum or something with some variance, you know, number associated with it so that we can sort of account for the, the differences in latency. Um, but, but that kind of little tiny mental model of I've got really deep sessions, users doing tons of stuff here. Um, it's going to feel better if I have a local data store and I've loaded everything into memory and I'm making local commits as I sync things back to the server, being very different to the idea of just going to a thing, doing a couple of interactions. Okay, so now we have this, we have this kind of like tunable decision framework where we can think about um, what are my, what are my, who are my users? Where are they? Right, because that matters. Like, so who are they? What kind of environment are they on? If I'm looking at my 75th percentile user, what kind of device are they on? So, right. So, so for Microsoft, you know, like I, I like to think of this is a device we sell. Uh, this is the Surface SE. Um, you can you can buy these if you're at a school. This is a uh, a four core. This is the, the higher end model. There's a two core version. This is a four core uh, Intel. What was it? An N4020 and N4021, something like that. Uh, if it does two gigahertz on a good day, um, you're, you're getting a lot of value out of it. Uh, it's got four gigabytes of memory or eight gigabytes. It, this is not a, a loaded spec machine. And you, you all on this call probably have phones that are faster than this device, right? So like that's the kind of target that we can set. We can say we want our applications to feel good for these users. We can situate it very mm -hmm. specifically and say this is a this is a slow target. We can hit it where we can set it, and then we can see if we can hit it. Um, and then we can break down what are we building. Like we know who we're building for. We know what kind of networks they're on, what, what kind of devices they're on, and then we can start to characterize what we're building. Are we building something with long sessions or short sessions? Is it bimodal? Are there th are there three humps in that distribution? How can we think about um, the kind of experiences that users are going to be traversing through our app? And if we don't have, if it's brand new development, we can go look at the existing corpus of applications in the world and say, what 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 are their kinds of uh, sessions like? What kind of things do they do? Um, 
maybe you have to go have a conversation with some of your peers uh, or go ask the web performance community or, I don't know, ask Dan to put up a Twitter poll and see what we can get back out of it. Um, it's, it's possible for us to, to try to come to a better understanding of that as we develop. And then we can start to understand what's an appropriate um, choice in terms of the budget that, that falls out of that calculus. So in that blog post about um, the performance baseline for 2023, you know, I, I put together a, a little vignette about first page load. And that first page load is, that's an ex loading a page is an extremely complicated thing to do. <laughs> we do lots of stuff when you load a page. And, and like calling, like even, like even saying when it's done is extremely challenging. The web performance community has spent years trying to iterate on different definitions that will be more and more accurate about what it means to be done loading a page. So let's not pretend it's simple. But what we can say is, for the P75 user on the P75 network, um, we can afford, if, if, we can, if we're mostly made of JavaScript, we can afford this much JavaScript and this much HTML and CSS. If we're mostly made of HTML and CSS, we can afford a lot more because it's much simpler and faster for the browser to process HTML and CSS, and we could do it in a much more streaming way. Like, it's, it's deferring more of the work to the runtime rather than we're going to do it live. Um, and so if you if you lean more heavily on the browser uh, in those environments, sorry, <laughs> uh, if you lean more heavily on the browser in those environments, then you end up in a situation where um, your budget expands. So um, there's, a, there's a bunch of follow-on questions around things like fonts and images and, and how can we think about delayed loading and deferred loading. Those are all really important. Um, but at a top level, if you take those budgets and you think about them as a per interaction budget, you can start to set a per interaction budget for latency. How long do I want in each interaction my denominator to take? And then you can start to think about how can I, over the length of a session that I know something about, uh, get to a point where they mostly fit inside of, the, of that window. So, so let me put it again in a very blunt and practical sort of a way. If you were tasked with building an e-commerce website today. Yeah, your e-commerce website is not an SPA. Well, yeah, so that kind of brings you to the question, what, te which technology, you know, putting aside like, you know, uh, yeah, Shopify like SPA, or, should... or something. Let's say you're building it from scratch, from the ground up. Um, what technologies would you be using? Uh, something that outputs HTML. <laughs> um, I don't know, PHP, Django, right? By the way, you, these days, uh, we, we seem to finally have an option of actually kind of using uh, JavaScript on the back end and getting what you're describing in the form of Astro, I guess. I mean, we've and, had it for 10 years, right? You could, you could make an Express app. You could output HTML. You could template, you could template HTML on the server side. That, that'll, that'll work the whole time. Yeah. But, okay. So yeah. the question that I, I'm trying to ask is, does something like server-side rendering in React or something like that, is that sufficient if you tone back what you're doing on the front end? That's a really, that's a really important question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, because uh, once <laughs> one of the great things about um, getting more honest about the costs that we're paying and who we're paying them for and what we're getting out of it is that um, it allows us to start making much more informed trade-offs. So um, let's say you have a big React application and you know that it can sort of minimally server-side render today. 
Um, I have in the past to teams in this situation recommended a tourniquet approach, right? Like uh, no, no JavaScript goes to the client um, unless it's signed off by your most senior engineer and uh, or a small team of people who are, who are actually deputized to, to write code for the client, um, which is in, in most organizations should be a minuscule bucket compared to the set of people who are building features. And then um, on the back end, yeah, I mean, you can, you can server-side render it, but now you have an interesting conversation uh, with your management about cost, right? You've started to move a lot of those costs from uh, a negative externality, like you're losing the business money to latency on the client side, but no one can really see it unless they look hard. So maybe you get away with it. It's just pollution, right? Like a lot of JavaScript these days is effectively performance pollution. But because it's a negative externality, you're putting it out into the world, but you're not paying for it. You don't have a you don't have a really drilled in conversation inside your organization about it. Once it's on your server, you're paying to run it. So now the costs compared to building that same HTML some other way can be a more informed and I'd submit honest conversation. Right? Is React a good replacement for PHP? I don't know. Maybe if you like that and you can afford it. Like if the cost of goods sold doesn't go up so high that uh, it's not economic, then cool. But, um, you know, I have a, a deep faith that anyone who can deal with the extreme complexity of a system like React can write server-side templates too in any language, right? Like it's, it's these are... <laughs> so, so we had an interesting conversation with uh, Kent, Kent C. Dodds, when he was on our show, speaking about... A remix, but also about uh, his uh, view of uh, of the evolution of the web application. And the point that he put forward was that some interactions, even in, let's call it, lightweight type scenarios, do work better when you can at least begin handling them on the client side. Uh, like... Um, I don't know, like uh, the example that he gave would, uh, was uh, liking a tweet. Uh, you don't want to do uh, a, a re-render, a reload of the web page containing a bunch of tweets just in order to like a tweet. Um, and if you're going to do templating both on the client side and on the server side, then it's much uh, more convenient and you know, more maintainable if you're using the same programming language and the same tooling on both sides. Uh, if you're, you're doing the template, the, 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 building the same templates on the server side and the client side, but on the server side using PHP and on the client side doing DOM manipulations, then, then it can become a challenge, a challenge to ensure that they remain consistent. Uh, and that this is now a, a really fruitful conversation because, you know, if you're in the Rails land, you can just do a partial, right? Just replace a partial. So you're right. You don't have to, you, like a whole page refresh might, in that case, if it's a deep session, that might be a bad experience, right? So we can, we can characterize the cost of that experience. So a full page reload may be significantly more expensive, right? In terms of latency, uh, perceived latency, or in terms of total network costs, because we have to like generate a lot more stuff maybe. Um, and so doing a smaller delta might be more efficient. Okay, great. And and now there's another constraint of like, maybe we want the same programming model uh, uh, through time. Okay, so so then what are the ways that we can get there? Well, we can, we can do 
uh, servers, like if the data model resides only on the server side, then we can think about how we can get partial updates back to the client so that we don't have to do that full page refresh. Um, if we want to split the data model of the client, now we're talking about escalating client side complexity and costs. We have a budget, hopefully, that falls out of that earlier decision matrix about what we can afford. So could we afford to do the, you know, the legacy framework, like the React style um, loading of the entire, you know, tree of rendered uh, content as a parallel mm -hmm. JSON structure and then double it up again in order to demo it as a or <laughs> as a second virtual DOM tree, right? Like, do those costs make sense? Does pulling all the componentry down the wire make sense? These are these are questions that we can evaluate more objectively from the frame of reference of wanting to ensure that our end-to-end -end latency is low. Now, um, optimistic commit for clicking a tweet with the same tools that you use on the server as on the client is, is interesting, but, you know, a, a real engineering organization is not going to be taking that as a shibboleth. That, that's not how we talk about engineering trade-offs. We talk about them as like, okay, do we have the skills necessary to handle differences between those two things on the server and the client? Is that a trade-off worth making? Um, what is the latency impact? And should we just decide to pay it for the future? So, so we would have, a, I think, a richer conversation if we didn't take as rote this kind of you know, working backwards from the presumed solution to a single answer that is kind of preordained. Uh, we would have a, a more, we, we would be less the JavaScript community and more the web development community that I think the JavaScript community kind of needs to, needs to upgrade itself into. In that context, you know, there seems to be uh, people out there trying to solve this uh, uh, conundrum that you're describing, but without like giving up on on the um, way in which the community has decided, the path the community has decided to take uh, over the past decade or so, but instead by uh, trying to, um, you know, address the problem from the framework perspective. So I'm thinking about like, you know, Chuck at the beginning mentioned, we had uh, Mishko, for example, on our show, and and you have Quick as an example of a framework built in JavaScript using very much a lot of the same mental models and approaches that are used in React, but trying to do it in a way that can at least theoretically support those uh, use those users and use cases that you were initially discussing. So, what do you think of that approach? Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's important for all of us to, uh, and it will be a big change, but I think it's important for all of us uh, to treat the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And so there is a lot of React-centric uh, um, con content in the world, a lot of React-centric teams, a lot of folks who are, who are going to be looking for a path out of the wilderness. And I'm, I'm excited about... Um, some of these incremental paths, right? Like if you look at what Remix sends down the wire, it's, it's and this is, this, this works back to what is, what is the technical thing we can afford. Um, what we wanna get to is a lower baseline cost so that when we decide to put our, our specialized content into, the, into the, the remaining budget, there's more room for our stuff rather than the framework, right? So 
one of the good things about pushing costs down in, you know, in the framework output, the default framework output is that it creates a larger space for us. Um, it creates space for us to be fallible, right? We're not perfect. I've never made a perfect web page. I will never make a perfect web page. I don't expect anyone else to. We're all going to screw stuff up. That's that's just how it goes. So what? how much space is there for us to screw stuff up? Like, how close to the edge are we running at every moment? And the objectionable thing about the way we have constructed things for the last decade or so has been that we have assumed that CPUs were getting faster and then networks are going to save us because they're going to be really great. Um, and there was all of this uh, latent um, compute power that we could and memory that we could throw at the question of how to how to manage pieces of a complex lifecycle. And none of that panned out. So like it just hasn't been true. So so those now that we've invalidated those extremely wrong and continuously falsified assumptions, right? Like they're not true. They haven't been true for a decade. They're still not true. They're not going to become true next year. Right. Like because the devices haven't cycled out, the networks haven't upgraded, right? All of those things are not true. They're still not true. So so now that we've gotten rid of the falsehoods from the kind of conversation, we can start to reset and go, okay, we've got this pile of stuff. How are we going to fix it? And so we can drive the framework cost down to zero with a cauterization or a tourniquet. Um, we can do kind of what Remix has done, where they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take what you've got and we're going to reinterpret it so that we're going to extract most of those costs. We're going to put a sieve in front of your React. <laughs> um, and then there are this, this, other, this other track, this other path, the road not taken. Um, the tools and frameworks that have, at their own detriment, um, marketed something other than developer heroics, right? Like if you think of the phrase SPA not as standing for single page application, but as slow page apologetics, um, I think you'll... <laughs> wow. You'll, you'll get a better view onto how we've spent the last decade. Shots like we spent the last decade apologizing um, and then retelling the same wrong story about how CPUs and networks were fast now, right? Like it's not been true. It just hasn't been true. It still isn't true. So if we, if we take that out of the conversation and say, what is my actual user journey? What does it look like? How many taps are there? What's the depth of that, of that, um, of that session? Uh, then we can start to think about oh, if I was building something new, what stacks would I, would I pick? Um, which stacks fit under my budget? And so when I see Mishko make the turn, you know, like, he got some extremely direct feedback from me back at Google. Like their team, um, I, I, I'm an equal opportunity. Um, uh, equal opportunity offender. Trace, That's me. That's me. <laughs> I don't mean to offend. I, I, I do want to, to dis distribute evidence, right? Like I think it's important for us to be grounded in evidence. And our community has decided that, that for a long time and decided that that wasn't where we were going. Um, I'd like us to return there. But as we return there, like seeing Mishko kind of like take on board the critique that was uncomfortable for a long time and really make a turn, like you can see what these incredibly intelligent, extremely talented people do when the constraints are reset and that we can acknowledge that those results are significantly better. So when I look at Astro, I look at Quick, I look at um, uh, Svelte and Sapper, I look at uh, the Preact team um, or any of the web components frameworks that have been doing this kind of great stuff. And now that they're kind of like getting into SSR with the Parrot of Shadow Dom, you know, the lits and the fasts and, and those folks. I am absolutely, I mean, even Vue has done a pretty good job um, of whatever the technology underneath it, um, telling a different and better story about why we're here and who we're here for. 
Because as professional people making web pages on the internet, we're not making them for us. Like we're we're weird. Like we have to acknowledge that like we're wealthy, we have good devices and networks. Um, we use maybe different services. Uh, we use them differently. And so as professionals, we're not here to make stuff for us. We're not hobbyists uh, in our in our day jobs. We're trying to serve other people and serve them well. And so in the spirit of doing a good job with that service, I think about not just the technology changing as these folks have 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 made a turn towards other stuff, but the narrative changing, right? Trickle down DX doesn't work, right? The Laffer curve is bullshit. And the Laffer curve for front end is also bullshit. And it's now entirely falsified. I, None of I, this works. You know, I think... I think, you know, we're using the terms UX versus DX uh, as a justification for a lot of the decisions. But realistically, I don't actually think the DX has improved that much. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, we are building incredibly <laughs> complex. I'm glad I'm amusing you. We're building incredibly <laughs> complex systems. And I repeatedly see developers who are way out of their depth when they're trying to deal with the details of, of modern frameworks. And we keep on throwing more complexity at it. So, for example, you know, I'm looking at, at a lot of the meta framework um, uh, providers uh, promoting uh, um, edge computing uh, as a means of addressing a lot of these performance issues where in reality, first of all, it's it's throwing a lot more complexity into the mix because Edge is not the front end and it's not the back end. It's yet another uh, uh, level that you would you need to support, and it's also adding cost because most of them are are promoting Edge because it's a way for them to make more money. Um, but um, but so so at the end of the day, it's not about improving UX. And it's not really about improving DX. I think it's more about the perception of hireability. I think maybe, like if I know React, then I can get. Then I can. If I say, if I can say that I know React, then I'm more likely to get a job or something along these lines. Yeah, this brings us full circle to the to the um, the failure of the management class uh, today. The people who are are paying for front end experiences are buying bad stuff. Now, I wrote a whole post this this past weekend. It's maybe a little bit too spicy um, <laughs> for this crew. Uh, um, you know, referring to George Akalov's most famous uh, paper called "The Market for Lemons," um, and the the TLDR is you know there's a it, it, this was this was based in the 70s on on the idea of a, the used car sales market where um, it's very hard for a potential buyer to know whether or not there's a de- defect in a used car, and so um, the price. Uh, for car used cars, it was frequently wrong because of hidden defects. And it makes less sense for someone to sell on a high quality thing because they're not going to get what's actually what, what they would actually um, uh, require for it because it, it's going to be mispriced. And so uh, what happens is that in that market, the, the market for lemons, uh, because of low information, if information asymmetry on the part of the um, of the buyers versus the sellers, uh, it's extremely hard for people to judge whether or not they're going to get a quality product on the other side. Like 
if you don't know that the um, the contract you put up was going to mostly get you clowns laying the bricks, then you might be surprised on the other side, um, maybe unhappily. Uh, but if you can't predict when that's going to happen, or you think that the wall is going to be good, but then it always turns out bad, you're going to stop buying walls. So I think this is actually where we get um, where we get to the TLDR for me, which is uh, if we keep going down this path, th- there is no such thing as a as a uh, requirement that businesses continue to buy web pages, right? Like there doesn't have to be a future for us if we keep screwing it up this badly. It, it's not preordained. Um, there's there's no uh, there's no imperative that people continue to make new web stuff. Uh, and so one of the outcomes of the Market for Lemons paper is that the market. Um, in addition to getting worse, like the contents of it getting worse, which we have definitely seen in our in our end of the world for the last decade, um, the market itself shrinks. There, there's less demand overall for these products because when they're bad and they're consistently bad and they're unknowably bad, people just kind of don't want them. So when bad experiences, you know, put a little bit more prosaically, when bad experiences are the norm, why would you why would you buy one? Why, why wouldn't you go make a native app? Why wouldn't you go try some other way to deliver? Why wouldn't you just go like give it all, get all your content to Facebook or like push it out through RSS or something else? Like, why would you make web stuff? Um, there's no, uh, <laughs> there's no preordained uh, market for front end. Uh, it is what we make it, and if we keep making it poorly, we're we're not going to have much of it. So I would I would encourage folks to think I- hard about. Um, how doing a good job for users is doing a good job for yourself. I think I, I uh, go for it, AJ. I, we do need to wrap I up. I just soon. feel like this is an argument that's, that's dead in the water because I, I, I like, I feel you, right. You're making the points that I want to make, except you've got way more research to back it up. And that is so awesome. But the idea that because something is bad, and has a detriment that it's going to go out of fashion. Oh, I can tell you for, uh, I'll, I'll drop the link to a talk I gave back in 2019. Um, the data that we were seeing inside the Chrome team about the use of the web on Android um, falling off a cliff, uh, it is all, it is everything you need to know about how badly it's going. Um, people don't want the web because it sucks. Okay, okay, right, so you're saying them. that apps, now I could see I could see a future in which, because most people don't have computers today, it seems. From from my uh, observation, outside of programmers, people don't have. Oh, a you computer mean desktop computers? You mean desktop computers? Yeah, they all have phones. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and so and yeah. the app experience is is it's not just that it's often a better experience for the user. It allows them to pry into the person's life, have registered hooks that fire every hour to remind them to do something that you know tracks where their location is. It gives them complete. It's like it's like you get to be in their bedroom, you know. But those are also downsides, right? From from, from an end user's perspective, right? The, the total invasion of privacy is not great. So there should be a vibrant market for the web. And, to and, I, and for I think business. that there is because the luckily for the web, the app store experience is just so bad. Uh, I mean, there there's a reason that most people have like, what, seven apps installed on, on their phone. And that's more or less it. I mean, if I'm going to do some, you know, uh, if I'm going to look to buy some clothes online, I won't install an app for that. I'm always amused by the fact that, you know, I walk into some store, some physical store, and they 
tried to convince me to install their app, and I'm going like, yeah, right, I'll install your app. I'll, yeah. I, There's hope. We have advantages, right? We can be in the hunt, but not if the idea of buying a web experience just is just going to reliably end up in a terrible time for the user, right? That's just not right. going to be the way that we win. I'm going to I'm gonna wrap us up because at this point, <laughs> I, I've got to go. I know, um, you know, I've seen in the chat a couple other people saying that they've got to go soon. But I, I think the point is well made. Um, I think there's more debate to be had. I'd love to, you know, dive a little deeper on this. Uh, maybe and at a solution. different venue or... I, I want to hear the solution. We need a part two for what, well, what do you do about it? We can complain about it, but what do you do about it? Sure, sure. I'd, I'd be happy yeah. to come back and, and talk talk you through how we can do that. Yeah, let's do that. Um, in the meantime, though, we're going to wrap up. Um, we're going to quickly do, and keep it short, um, the self-promo segment, and then we'll do the picks. Uh, Dan, what are you working on that people should know about? Nothing much, to be honest. Uh, the, nothing beyond what I've said on previous shows. I'm mostly working at the, you know, working on my day job at the company where I'm at, and that's mostly on. Right. And 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 to be honest, though, there are a lot of aspects to my day job that kind of um, uh, echo a lot of what we were t- speaking about today. And uh, you know how you know fighting the good fight against certain technical decisions that were made. Uh, several years ago, mostly involving SP- SPAs, uh, which are resulting in suboptimal performance. All right. AJ, what are you working on? So with Dash Incubator, I am working on a, a wallet, a, a cryptocurrency wallet that is very mm, in the vein of what crypto nerds would hate, but what the average person might be able to stand using. Uh, the, but I don't really have any any anything to to link anybody to about that yet. But I've been rewriting a whole ton of uh, blockchain transaction and an HD wallet and basically the entire the entire stack of tools that are needed for a cryptocurrency wallet. I have either rewritten from scratch, heavily refactored from someone else's code, or curated a a very select module from someone who's written very clean, very minimal, very modern uh, code that doesn't rely on shims and hacks and, you know, that uses BigInt and that uses uh, web crypto and all those sorts of things so that it's actually a nice experience for the developer as well as a better experience for the end user not having to download six megabytes of transpiled C++ and whatnot. Cool. Steve, what are you working on? Uh, nothing to share with the outside world, just a sort of internal app using one of my favorite current stacks right now, uh, UJS, Inertia.js, and Laravel, PHP on the back end. Sorry, AJ. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a learning experience. It's a, it's a neat stack, for sure. Yeah, I know a lot of people that like Laravel. Um I am working on launching and continuing to launch uh, Catapult Your Coding Career. I think it's self-explanatory other than saying it's a podcast, so go listen to it. Um, I will probably start adding some of those episodes to this feed just so that you can kind of get a feel for whether or not you want to listen to it. And then I'm also launching another podcast um, that's going to be the Developer's Toolbox, and that's going to be interviews with people who are making tools that you use on a day-to-day basis. Um, 
and yeah, more to come there. Uh, Alex, what are you working on these days? Uh, well, I spend about half my time with teams inside of Microsoft trying to make our web apps better and faster. So uh, if you hear if you hear primal screams from this side of the world, that's probably where that's coming from. <laughs> we we, nice. we have we have every React horror. Um, I, I will say um, outside of that, uh, you know, I think it's really important what this group of open and open source and uh, uh, sort of advocates are doing around browser competition on mobile. Um, they, they've organized under the banner of Open Web Advocacy. Uh, you can find them at their website, open-web-advocacy.org. Um, I know that they're about to start a fundraising drive to support this work. Um, and it's extremely, I just cannot stress enough how much impact this group, this merry band of fellow travelers have had over the last two years. They are a key reason why the European Union's DMA um, may finally force browser competition on iOS uh, next year. Uh, they have done so much incredible work uh, working closely with regulators in their spare time. Um, they are not funded. They are not associated with, with some big company. This is all volunteer, and they are they are doing the deity's work. So check them out. Um, and as they as they open up their pitch for fundraising, if you can support them financially, um, you know, uh, please join me in doing that. Awesome. All right. Well, um, we'll we'll take that as a pick and move into picks. Dan, what are your picks? So my uh, first pick is uh, actually, so it's funny, I, I ran a poll. It's, it's more of a observation, I guess, than an actual pick. So I, I, I ran a poll and I'm going to make a jab at, uh, at Steve uh, because, you know, Steve likes to say that, you know, uh, we should always use the best tools for the job, uh, to which I tend to respond and it kind of... Um, you know, falls into the conversation that we've had today that, yes, but practically we use the same tool for every job as long as they can somehow get the job done. Uh, and uh, I basically asked in a poll who people side with. Do they side with Steve as in they pick the best tool for the job? Do they side with me in the sense that they are they likely use the same tool for everything? Or do they think that we both are correct or that neither of us are correct? which is kind of amusing because it's really neither or. Uh, and uh, it turns out that um, I, beat, I beat Steve 4 to 1. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's the way it is. And, and, it, and it kind of, as I said, it kind of matches what we've been discussing here today, that people basically use the React for everything, whether it's right or wrong, you know, in terms of, of the end result. Uh, so well, I think that poll could have had a little better phrasing, maybe. Of course, but it was and my it, poll. And split it, <laughs> and, you know, and split it between what you'd like to do versus what you really have the bandwidth to do. Oh, for sure. And you're, you're more than welcome to run your own poll and, <laughs> and beat me at it. <laughs> okay. As long as you retweet it, you have more followers than I do, probably. <laughs> I'll promise yeah. to retweet it if you run this, that, that poll. Um <laughs> Anyway, so that would be my first pick. And my second pick would be uh, the uh, pomelo fruit. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with it. It's the season, at least here in Israel. I love it. It's amazing. It's sweet and it's tangy. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, I, I guess it's also called citrus maxima. It's like, you know, because it, it's kind of big. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I literally eat 
some every day, and I'm it's, it's just great. I hope the the season lasts uh, as long as possible. So that would be my second pick, and uh, my third pick is that same pick that I pick each and every time: the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, you know, whatever anybody can do to help the people of Ukraine, please do. Uh, and and that those are my picks for today. Awesome. Steve, what are your picks? All right, I'll keep it short and keep it to the high point, the dad jokes of the week. First one has quite an interesting story, though. Um, so as it goes, I ordered a, a deck of cards from Amazon. And two weeks later, it hadn't arrived. I called customer service and they said they're dealing with it. Now, the funny part of this is that I got an actual response from Amazon from that tweet. Uh, they said, if you follow me on Twitter, you can see it. And they said, we're sorry for the wait. To clarify, have we missed the expected delivery date given in your order confirmation email? You can find this email in your Amazon message center. <laughs> so I had to reply to the gal. Her name was Christy. And tell her, uh, sorry, this was actually a dad joke. I wasn't being serious. So they appreciated that. But that was, I thought it was funny. That tells me how much they're scanning Twitter. Um and then I asked, I asked a librarian if uh, she had a book about Pavlov's dog and Schrodinger's cat. She said it rang a bell, but she wasn't sure if it was there or not. And uh, I had to go look up Schrodinger's cat on that one. I wasn't even sure about it. <laughs> I'd seen the name all the time, but but uh, didn't know it off the top of my head or offhand either. And then finally, um, my boss the other day asked me. Why do you only get sick on weekdays? I said, it must be my weekend immune system. For those not I, I like right. on video, I like Alex is really shaking his head. No, I, I like that groaning. one. <laughs> That's all I have. All right, AJ, picks. So I've got one really important one, which is I'm going to pick Vim Ale. And I'm not going to pick Vim Ale because it's great, which it is. I'm going to pick Vimeo because the maintainer did something incredibly stupid. In a minor release, he made an update that basically Vimeo is an asynchronous uh, tool. So it'll run the, the, the linter not on save, but while you're typing. And, and it made this feature where the error messages show up in line with the code rather than just down at the bottom. And that, so if you open up a new bracket, it'll show a hundred error messages because if you open up a new bracket and there's not a closing bracket, then, then every single line is an error and it, and it, it makes it completely unreadable, completely unusable in version 3.3, which I accidentally, uh, updated to. And so I open up an issue about this and other users start opening up issues or, or start commenting on that issue pretty much immediately and the author is just defending himself and, uh, you know, he's insulting his users and you know, asserting that, well, it's a good feature and people won't know about it unless it's on by default. So it's, it's better for them to have it on by default and complain about it than not know it's there and, you know, yada, yada. But so we did a little bit of, uh, you know, who's is bigger and back and forth and, you know, at the end of it, he just, you know, said, well, you know, it's, it's the option and I'm, and I'm sticking with it. And I just appreciate that we were able to be able to be rude to each other and quote unquote toxic. And, you know, 
that we were able to have a real conversation that we were actually able to have a real conversation and it's not like, oh, you've offended me. I'm going to block you. Oh, you don't come to my project anymore. You know, it, it just, it was so nice to be able to get into an argument and to just handle it like men for once <laughs> and let it, let it be. Um, and, and so I, I've had three, three arguments online in the past week. Uh, one of them ended in the person telling me that I wasn't creating an emotionally safe space for them and blocking me. And uh, the the other one actually went kind of well too, but it's just, it's, it's just, it's so nice when people can accept criticism and respond in kind, if that's what they feel they need to do and not it and not have to have it be a, well, I need to call the police because, because I don't like your opinion. You know, it's just, and, and, and so I picked that author because he handled the situation well, and he believes in his point, and he stuck to it even though he's wrong, and I respect him for that. All right. So we're doing picks and rants. Um, but before we continue, if I can make just a really quick observation, because it happened, you know, obviously I'm also on um, on Twitter as we as we speak and and earlier today I tweeted the things I like about React because believe it or not there are actually quite a number of things that I really like about React and somebody replied to my tweet with uh, I like the fact that it's easy to learn if you know JS you can start with React pretty quickly to which I couldn't help but respond uh, if learning React is so easy let's see you name all the built-in hooks in React and their purpose <laughs> and Oof. then I, Oof. <laughs> and then I also put, uh, you know, I don't remember those either. So you know, it's not as if I'm better than he is because I'm not. That that was the sort of tweet that got me the person saying that I made them no, feel yeah, un- emotionally but, but, unsafe. It was very similar to that. Yeah, but that's why I I, I included in my response that I don't remember it e- either because I'm I'm really not, um, um, at- you know, attacking them or trying to prove them as unknowledgeable in React, I'm, I'm making the point that React is, is definitely not as easy as a lot of people, you know, like to make it out to be. And then a lot of people then are kind of struggling with the fact that if React is supposedly so easy, why am I finding it so challenging? Anyway. Right. All right, well... And more uh, to the point, if you've hired a whole set of people who specialize in this extremely complex tool, why don't you believe that they can retrain onto something else, right? Like, like they mastered this extremely complicated thing. Uh, they're clearly smart enough to do whatever. You can make whatever choices you want. You're not a hostage, sorry. Nope, all good. All right, I'm gonna jump in with my picks. I do a board game pick every time. This one, I'm gonna pick Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. Came out in 2019, two to four players. Um, it is Harry Potter themed, obviously, and uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of how it is played, but it is a little bit more complicated game. Uh, Board Game Geek weights it at 2.31. Um, my wife and I have really enjoyed it, but the first few times we played it, we just couldn't win it. Um, and then after after that, what we figured out is that we just needed to stay on top of uh, healing and removing corruption from locations and things like that. Um and we had to make sure that we didn't allow too many Death Eaters to get uh, out there and be hurting us on a regular basis. And then we were able to actually win it. So um, that's just some advice if you're trying to win this game and you have struggled, right? Some of the games, 
you can kind of take a chance with stuff and get away with it. And this one is a little less forgiving that way. You can still do it sometimes, but some of those times we've taken those chances and either lost or really had to fight to come back from it. Um, it also looks like, though, that there's another game that is more or less the same, and that is Thanos Rising uh, Avengers Infinity War. I do not have this game, but it, it, yeah, it says it's a re-implementation of that. And there are a bunch of other ones. Um, I guess there's an Avatar one, but they all kind of follow the same structure. So if Harry Potter's not your thing, it looks like there are others. Um, yeah. Uh, Avatar Last Airbender, Fire Nation Rising, that's 2022 that came out last year. Bat, the Batman Who Laughs Rising, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, Plankton Rising, and Star Wars Dark Side Rising. So, um, yeah, if Harry Potter's not your gig, you can find another one that plays kind of the same. Uh, beyond that, I'm going to do a quick shout out for um, a couple of other resources. Um, one of them, I just joined this group and it's been terrific just to kind of get the feedback on things that I'm working on to run a podcast business. It's called Arate Syndicate. Um, it's run by Andy Frazella and uh, Ed Milet, and they do a call every few weeks and, you know, kind of break down business and discipline topics. And then there are a whole bunch of people in there that are all pulling for you to succeed and that you help other people succeed. So it's kind of an online mastermind-ish without the mastermind call. And I'm I'm really I've I've gotten a ton out of it, so I'm going to pick that as well. Um, Alex, what are your picks? I feel like I'd be double dipping um, if no, I was to uh, rec- recommend anything. Um, in the same vein as maybe uh, what we were just discru- discussing, um, I, I can commend Andy Bell's recent blog post about uh, Task for Who, uh, talking about um, the kinds of trade offs that we as a community have been making. Uh, you know. For our, our own benefit, um, maybe to the exclusion of benefits for our users and customers. Awesome. All right. One last question. If people want to follow you online and they're not doing that yet, where do they find you? Uh, I'm on Mastodon. Uh, I am uh, at slightly off at toot.cafe. And uh, my webpage, as ever, is at infrequently.org. And you can find links to uh, reach me there. All right. Good deal. Well, thanks for coming. This was really, really fascinating. And until next time, folks, Max out.